Welcome to the Ivy Unfiltered Podcast. Vidal here along with my big brother, Barry. Welcome, everybody. Super excited to dive in. We're going to be talking about five exhilarating, highly life-changing topics. And we're going to dive right in, starting with Tiffany Bova. She is a super renowned thought leader when it comes to how to grow businesses. And she wrote this book a few years ago. It was all about 10 pathways to growth. And it got a lot of attention. It was a great book. But when she reflected on it, she realized in that entire book about how to drive growth, she only had like a couple of paragraphs on how should you then create an experience for your, for your employees to drive that kind of growth. So we're each going to share our key resonation from this one, have a bit of a discussion, and then go into the remaining four thought leaders for this week. So Veed, what was your key resonation from Tiffany? I mean, the key res resonation really breaks down to two letters, Barry, E and X. And we've been, you know, in our careers, we keep hearing about CX, CX, maximize customer experience, make it easy for them, make everything as easy as possible. And over the last 20 years, we've, we've gone, we've made huge strides in business to make things as easy as possible for the customer. Um, but what, what gap have we left there? It's the employee experience. What we've done and what Tiffany outlines so wonderfully is we're just, while maximizing customer experience, we're slowly minimizing, first of all, the interaction that employees have with those customers and any tangible sense of how the work that they do relates to that customer experience in a true way. And the reality is, I think the big, big takeaway for me is the idea that maximizing employee experience will lead to better customer experience. And these things are not decoupled. Um, and I think most business leaders can un understand and acknowledge that as a truth. You know, I don't, I doubt we'd hear many challenges to that. But I think if everyone's being intellectually honest, they'd say, hmm, how much time and effort and space do we create to really maximize that employee experience? And how much is that really, you know, core to our, to our true values and to our true practices? So that's really the big takeaway for me. All right, excellent. So going off of what you just shared, one deeper thought that I've been having recently is about how there's this kind of diminishing almost compassion, diminishing focus as we go from the external world and move uh, increasingly to our internal world. So for example, if it's a customer that's paying us a billion dollars a year, we're obviously going to be on our best behavior. We're going to go above and beyond for them. We're going to do whatever it takes uh, to make them happy. If it's a smaller customer that's just paying a couple thousand a year, you know, we'll still do our best, but a little less so. And then when it comes to our colleagues that we interact with every day, of course, we want to be the best version of ourselves, but perhaps a little more unfiltered, a little bit more, you know, kind of willy-nilly in the ways in which we behave hmm. around our colleagues. And as that comes even closer to sometimes our family members and how we may treat them. And finally, when it comes to ourselves, how we treat our own selves, it feels like we almost, uh, our behaviors get less and less, yeah. um, like they're less polished, less intentional. So there is something really interesting about how can we treat ourselves as well as we would treat our best customer. How would we also broaden the definition of ourselves? So there's us as an individual, but then there's our loved ones, our colleagues. And clearly, the better an experience that we're providing to those closest to us, 
including our own mind, body, and soul, the better we can deliver for others. So it's just an interesting paradox there. And uh, I wonder if this is actually arising from a kind of almost a, a, a game theory uh, issue. Uh, there is this thing around, you know, if it's a billion dollar customer a year, we know that like if we, you know, give them the best experience, it's great for them, it's great for us. It's very clear, it's very aligned. But sometimes when it comes to internal dynamics and internal affairs, there's this challenge of, um, well, what if people game the system? You know, what if we're too loose, too relaxed? And with employees, it could be like, well, what if people take advantage of the system if there's too much flexibility and everybody can do whatever they want? So we want to make sure we can control and create structures to get the best out of everyone. And maybe even with ourselves, it's the same. A lot of uh, maybe lack of self-compassion, certainly in my case, is like, well, what if I'm being too lazy? What if I'm not working hard enough? What if I'm like, you know, lying to myself and not really mm. focused on the right thing? So I feel like that harshness increases because maybe yeah. we worry about, you know, the closer we get to home, the more possibility for um, not not being our best or not getting the best out of others because people may be looser with us. Yeah. I, well, first of all, that all resonates a lot with me. And it is interesting. I mean, the paradox itself, it's just so backwards. And I think we can all relate to this, particularly with our families, with our employees, with ourselves. Yeah. The closer it gets the harsher that we're able to be, um, even though, you know, it's an inverse relationship, I think, with love and and somehow how kind you are to those that are that are closest to you. Now, of course, we all love, we're all kind, we all support our teams. But as you said, with that big billion dollar customer, you really are in your best behavior and you can let loose. So what I was reflecting on, as you said, that was also this idea that, you know, as as you get closer the the costs for the other party for to leave and their incentives to leave get much much higher right so that's why i think we can take it for granted and if you go all the way back to the inner self it was very hard to leave yourself right you're gonna have to live with yourself so you can be as harsh as you want and then you know you wake up the next morning it's still you same with your family right like you have to take things pretty far before they're gonna you know they're gonna walk out but a customer, the cost of exit is relatively low, right? And as, as business people, we want to maximize that cost of exit. But the reality is, I think that's why we take things for granted as it gets closer. Now, talking about employees and what Tiffany was fo focused on with employees, obviously, they are committed to the mission. They're accountable to their peers. Um, there are people after all, and we're talking about people on every side of this equation, Um but I think certainly as leaders, we feel like we can fall short. And it's kind of, I mean, it's very strange if we think about it, particularly in non-hardware businesses and more software-based businesses, employees, that's probably 90% of your cost base. And 90% of your cost base, what percentage of your attention does that, does that cost base get? Certainly a lot less. Now, you can say, oh, well, who's driving revenue, we got to focus on our customers, but how much revenue is there without the team producing the value for those customers? So it's a super, super interesting framework. Um, and it's one of these things where intellectual awareness doesn't necessarily lead to emotional internalization and also behavior. Like this is something that requires, I think, repeated internalization and real structure and practice to, to get right within an organization and also within families and also within ourselves. 
because it's counterintuitive and our instincts for whatever reason it might be our instincts really like push us to this to this to this gap um which is a paradox and you know what it's not good for anybody it's a lose 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 scenario um even the customers lose at the end of the day um so extremely interesting framework absolutely uh, and i really really encourage everyone um to dive deeper with this idea and really think about the concept of ex um when when thinking about their their team and their business excellent so as we segue to the next module my call to action i guess for everybody building on what you said also vidal is there's customer experience there's employee experience cx ex then there's also you know our own life experience and each one has very similar ingredients right so what's the journey for the customer What's the journey for our colleagues? What's yeah. the journey in our own lives? And if we want the best for the customer, the journeys for our employees and ourselves need to be elevated and vice versa. So highly recommend everybody to think about perhaps what's one thing you could do to uh, you know, put some fraction of the effort you put on your customers and how you would translate that to your employees so that they in turn can be in a better position to deliver for everybody else. Um, with that said, let's continue to the second module that we shared this week. This was with Kyle Bucket and Chris Mefford, how Navy SEALs and successful businesses create self-leading teams that win. And the title of their book is Leadership is Overrated. And knowing everybody in our audience here, uh, obviously, you know, <laughs> it's meant to be provocative. Um, Vidal, what was your key resonation from this particular module? First of all, I just want to talk about the title of the book. Is leadership overrated? I think the reality is leadership is underrated in many ways. And they they explore this idea and the, the, the title is deliberately provocative. But leadership, the reality is leadership is hard. And I think that's why it's underrated. It's not a natural practice. It's a deliberate practice and it's a learned practice. Um, but we often think of management as the skill that's learned and leadership is the kind of attributes that are innate. I think the reality is leadership has to be, effective leadership has to be extremely deliberate. Um, and you know, in, in, in the concept of Navy SEALs, we all respect them. They're the super soldiers of the world. It's awesome, it's badass. The reality is these are highly, highly trained leaders all within themselves. And it's probably one of the most important parts of their of their training. And there's a ton of ton to learn um, from businesses, uh, from Kyle and Chris. My biggest resonation, Barry, was the concept and hiring of teachability. So Chris really talked about when they hire, they're looking for teachability standards Um in those employees and what does that mean it's how open are they to learning how open are those employees to change and therefore how adaptable are they when they're presented with new information now this definitely relates to navy seals because the seals are you know it's not just about their physical fitness or their strength it's really about mental acuity um, and how rapidly they can learn new concepts because every mission is something completely new and in business that's how life is in many ways and, and relating back to tiffany to have a maximal EX, you know, you really want to create a teachability um, mindset within an organization. Uh, so that really resonated with me. And then in particular, I just love this statement that Kyle made. He said, 
everybody wants their teams to perform like Navy SEALs, but are you willing to invest three or four years of full-time training to get them to the level of Navy SEALs? Because that's the reality of what it takes for a Navy SEAL. It's not about just natural inherent talent. It's really about deliberate practice and years of it. So how many businesses are really willing to give years of training? How many times have we hired and said, okay, it's been one month, it's been two months. Like, are you in the game yet? Are you completely up to speed? It's fascinating. And this is also paradoxical. Um, where we want elite performance, where we don't necessarily provide the space for that performance to nurture itself and really come to fruition. We're going to talk about this a little bit more um, with the following module, but I think that's like, that really stuck out with me, this idea of like, how much are you willing to invest in terms of training? And what does training really mean? Is it watching a bunch of videos and reading a bunch of processes and shadowing someone? Or is it doing the job for years and figuring out how to do it at a maximum and elite level? Uh, so that's that's for me what was Aaliyah. I'm curious what you thought. Yeah, one contrast I think that's important is, you know, a Navy SEAL and how we imagine a Navy SEAL to be compared to, let's say, a miscellaneous generic soldier that just follows orders and, you know, isn't taking initiative and so on, just does what they're told. Um, and I should underline and say at Ivy, we love peace and unity. So not to glorify war here, but obviously peace and unity also comes from uh, being able to effectively defend and project force so to, to, to so that we're kept safe. Um, uh, the Winston Churchill quote, you know, we can sleep easily at night because there are tough men out there willing to visit violence on those who would choose to harm us. So anyways, uh, but there is something about who wouldn't want a team of Navy SEALs in their company, right, on their team. I mean, everybody would want that. As you were saying, though, if you want Navy SEALs, then that's a high bar. And the investment that those people need to make in themselves, that you need to make in them. And even though the context and the environment that you create for them just has to be very different, you if you want people who are going to be able to take initiative and figure things out and be obsessed about getting things right, uh, then time and space needs to be created uh, for them to do that. So you call it training, Vidal, and that's you know one way to definitely look at it. I think another part is this, I mean, you implied it too, that they are, you want to be training leaders. So leadership is overrated, expecting the top head honcho guy to do everything, you know, and figure things out. Um, I think like the best kind of leader though, is like the one that brings the best out of others. And if you want to bring the best out of others, you have to create an environment for them to flourish. And that requires that time and space for learning for people really deeply understanding like the goals and having that ability of like knowing the basics and being calm under pressure and things like this. So what, what would yeah. be, who would be expected to do all those things? A leader. Uh, so you're yeah. trying to give rise to leaders and that's not going to happen if you treat them like peons or like, you know, the, yeah. you know, like expendable chess pieces that are like, you know, be just because some people are not senior, even the most junior person on the team if they're able to really understand what is the mission, actually, like the real mission, how do we actually uh, get successful in that? And then I'm going to do whatever it takes, uh, whether I'm told or otherwise, and figure this out. And what's interesting there, Barry, is not, it. you know, the concept of this being ongoing is what's super important as well, because it's not, a Navy SEAL is not 
made and is a finished product. N neither is a elite athlete. Tom Brady didn't stop training after he won five Super Bowls or six Super Bowls. Like this, it, he continued training. He probably trained even harder as he got older because he had more of the wisdom to figure out where his gaps are and where, where improvement is required. So when we talk about time and space for teams, the leader, the true leader understands that that time and space needs to be consistent, ongoing, structured, um, and it shouldn't be a trade-off for employees. There shouldn't be a trade-off between I need to perform versus I need to really analyze where I'm falling short and do the things that I need to do to improve myself. Um, and that's a trap that we fall into because that's kind of the reality of the business world for sure. But I think the reality of any organization that's trying to achieve something together the, there's always a time pressure, there's always a deadline, and we're pushing performance more and more and more. Um, and I think interestingly, that really brings us very nicely and segues us to the next module that we want to talk about uh, from this week uh, from Eduardo Brinseno, um, the performance paradox, uh, which I, I know I this one really blew me away. Uh, so I'm happy to introduce this one. Um, what really, so like, what is the, what is the performance paradox? The real paradox is this idea that better performance doesn't come about from more performance and more intense performance. Uh, and the, the real, like, I guess the, the core framework that, that, that Eduardo really beautifully outlines is a concept of the performance zone and then a concept of the learning zone. And the reality is that elite performance does not come about without elite learning. Uh, so this is very related to what we were talking, what we were just talking about. And what resonated with me so much is the idea that if you look at a Tom Brady of the world or any elite performer, especially in sports, it's easy to look at sports because you can see objective performance metrics. Those elite performers, yeah, we only see them when they're performing. We don't see them when they're not performing. That's always behind the scenes. Um, but a, a big kind of, I don't know, I think a big driver in businesses that we get uh, is, is to try to get our teams and employees performing all the time. But the reality is those elite performers aren't performing all the time. They're performing on game day. But what are they doing the rest of the week? It's not that they're not doing any work. In fact, they're doing an enormous amount of work. But what they're doing is deliberate practice. And deliberate practice is different from performance because when you're practicing, you can get things wrong. The stakes are not as high, but that means you can be more creative. You can take more risks. And the, the concept of deliberate practice, I just find extremely, extremely powerful. And it's something that when I reflect on myself, I think, huh, do I over-index on my natural talents? How much practice do I put on the things that I'm good at? So that's interesting. We often practice things that we're not good at, but how much do we practice things that we really truly are good at? because that's where we can have the most impact, but it's super counterintuitive and it really stumped me. And I think this week it's really become a reality. So I, I thanks to this module, thanks to Eduardo, I identified two areas where I really need to work harder to bring out the best and really supercharge the natural talents that I'm blessed to have already. And we all have our natural talents and really nurture those talents rather than trying to you know, spend that learning time improving the things that we're not as confident about. Why not supercharge what we're best at? So what are those two things you're going to work on? Oh, well, one thing is I, you know, I'm very blessed. Thankfully, I've always had a very good memory. 
And therefore I rely heavily on my memory. I like to be really present in conversations. I like to make eye contact and it's super important to me to have that contact. But what it, re what it relate, or sorry, what I lose when I, when I do that is I feel like I will lose some presence if I'm obsessively taking notes. But the reality is I go to the other extreme where I take no notes, I'm too present and I'm over indexing on my memory. And what happens? Obviously I forget things. I still remember a lot. I get by, life is good. But how much better could life be if I was more deliberate about that? And that came about because I'm currently reading Walter Isaacson's excellent biography of Leonardo da Vinci. Um, and look, we all know Leonardo da Vinci as one of the great masters of the world. Brilliant scientist, brilliant painter. Here's my quick reflection on the biography as I'm quite close to the end now. Quick reflection is Leonardo da Vinci, he's underrated underrated massively underrated the man is so much more brilliant than we think or we believe and you know why that is it's not because he's naturally the greatest painter or sketcher or architect or thinker um or the most curious person in the world these are his natural talents he's endowed with these with these blessings but the reality is he practiced like crazy. First of all, we know so much about him because he was very good at starting projects, not very good at finishing projects, but he left copious notes, thousands of pages of notes in detail about every single thing that he observed, everything that he was working on, really detailed to-do lists. It's, it's surprising. You could look at those notes and it feels like, you know, someone of the modern age working in their Evernote or whatever their like favorite uh, productivity tool is. So that's amazing. And then with sketching, he sketches the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Sometimes it's imperceptible, even the differences, but for him over years, he's still sketching the same face over and over. And it's that desire to be, to, to seek perfection that I think like really, really brings out elite performers. Um, and so that got me thinking about, well, I need to write more things down. Um, because I'm no Leonardo and I'm definitely not blessed with his creative abilities. But the reality is there is a natural, there is a set of natural talents that I have, but I neglect to nurture them because it's good enough. But is it great? Is it elite? It's not. And I think if we all reflect on ourselves, th there's very few of us. There are people out there for sure who are extremely deliberate. But I think there's very few of us, if they're being honest with themselves, who can say, I'm really putting in very deliberate practice to nurture my natural talents. All right, beautifully said, Reed. Um, and as you know, <laughs> I grew up not being much of a note taker, but now I take notes obsessively. It helps me focus and keep track. Um, I think for me, uh, from the performance paradox, the part uh, in the interview that blew me away where I, I was so mind blown that I had to actually pause for a moment uh, and got quite emotional. Uh, I asked Eduardo about, you know, all these sports analogies are great and business people love hearing it. Uh, but then why don't we just run businesses like sports teams? Like, why don't we just actually treat every colleague as an athlete and ourselves as an athlete? And his response to that question was, well, sports is about winning. And in contrast to that business and life, is about having a positive impact on others. So it's not the same, uh, even though, of course, we want to quote unquote, win in business and life, but it's not so obvious winning in business and life, what it actually is, it's certainly not just the next deal, 
or, you know, just having a great year next year, right? You want to have a great life, a great business for the long run. You want to have that great eulogy, right? One day, hopefully in many, many decades uh, for, for all of us. And, uh, and so that was a, that was quite moving. And I think that if that's what we're solving for, it does put things into a bit more of a perspective. Uh, and uh, sometimes, you know, this, this thing of like ancient philosophy, right? Like treat people as an end in themselves and not a means to an end. Similarly, whether it's ourselves, our mastery of skills and becoming elite, it's not just about like, well, okay, am I elite now? Because there is no end to that journey, right? Like the greatest sports people of all time, they can't relax uh, even after winning five Super Bowls, yeah. whatever. You have to keep getting better. But also if it's about some elusive, like, oh yeah, I'm going to get there. No, you're not like, there's never going to be like, there is no finish line. Nike has right from a couple of sure. decades ago. There is no finish line. So Da Vinci, I haven't read the biography yet, but we did host another interview with Michael Galbon, you know, how to like develop your genius mindset, seven steps to genius, which was all about Leonardo's methods also. And he did talk a lot about how Da Vinci really wanted to know the mind of God. And obviously that's a risky word to use because it might turn some people off, but really he wanted to get to the truth with a capital T, like what, what are things about? How do things work? And I, I do believe that an incredibly powerful way of certainly the way I want to look at my own life is, you know, yes, like want to achieve lots of things, make a really positive impact, but there is like the E equals MC squared of what I am trying to do. And what I think everyone is trying to do, that formula for how to live a life, how to treat other people, how to leave the world better than you found it, how to leave just the conversation better than, you know, how to leave a person better than you found them just as a result of a conversation. So I get really motivated by that. And that takes a ton of practice. And Einstein came up with E equals MC squared. And he didn't just then like get a gold medal and quit <laughs> and then like go on a vacation. Then it was like, okay, now I know this formula. Where can it be applied? What are the remaining mysteries? What What's inexplicable? So sometimes like looking at practice, it can seem painful. Like he, Eduardo gave the example of the tennis player trying to get the ball into one corner at an angle at a certain speed and just like practice that all day long. For a lot of us, that might seem like monotonous. It's like, okay, yeah, I want to be good at public speaking, but I'm not going to do practice it every single day like that, like a sports person. But if it becomes more about like, what's the truth of like, what makes a great public speaker? Mm -hmm. What do they need to do more of and less of? And then getting closer to that truth. And I think, yeah, whenever I'm moved to tears, when I get goosebumps, because I hear a quote or read something or hear a song, I genuinely believe that's like something that's uh, a signal, a hint of the truth with a capital T. And for me, that's the greatest motivator for you know, why put in all the hard work for the practice and the performance. Final thought and call to action for everybody on this one is uh, the quote that many of us have already heard, but you can't sharpen a knife while you're using it. And so <laughs> I think the biggest call to action here is like for all of us who are like performing every day, morning to night and doing everything, truly how much time are we carving uh, or <laughs> carving out <laughs> to sharpen the knife? Um, uh, and what can we do to just increase that by maybe by 10%, right? Not, we don't need to 10 exit, but like 
what would it mean to invest 10% more? And then as leaders, what would it mean if we have 100% oversight and influence over how people spend their time in our organizations? What would it look like if one out of every 10 hours was dedicated to sharpening the knife? Uh, even if nine hours is gameplay, what would it mean for each hour out of 10, uh, 10% of time to go there? So let me know if you have so any interest on that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I love that analogy. I, I hadn't heard that knife analogy before. And I love it because for any of the keen cooks out there, you know your favorite chef's knife, you cut with it and it's amazing when you first buy it. But actually, the more you use it, the blunter it gets and you need to sharpen it. And if we apply that analogy to ourselves, our own minds, our own performance, and then also the performance of teams and groups, the reality is sharpening is important because it doesn't stay flat. It actually, the performance gets worse over time without sharpening. The knife will get blunter. Um, so keeping it sharp is an intentional practice. Um, and it's not something that, oh, okay, like we'll stay flat and that's good enough. No, you're gonna get worse. So I love that analogy. Um, that's a very cool one. Thanks for sharing that. My pleasure. And with that, we'll segue to the next module with Christina Wallace, who talked to us about the portfolio life and how we can future-proof our careers, avoid burnout, and build a life bigger than your business card. A few things about Christina. One, she's an absolute rock star. She was my classmate at Harvard Business School. She is an incredible entrepreneur, amazing family person. She's now uh, an incredible professor who leads actually one of the programs on entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School. So incredible, incredible person. Uh, I love the interview with her. And there was so much there. The key takeaway that I got was around the human Venn diagram. Oh, and me really too. Thinking... Me too. Love that. <laughs> so why don't you why don't you talk about it first, Vid, and then I'll I'll round it out from there. I mean, for me, I I just I never conceptually thought of a human Venn diagram and thinking of my life in that way. There's the there's Ikigai, which we have a wonderful module on that, and I was exposed to that when I was much younger. And Ikigai is the Japanese concept of figuring out what it is that you love doing, what you're good at, what you can get paid for. And what was the fourth one, Barry? Now I'm forgetting what the fourth. What the world needs. What does the world need? Yes, absolutely. So I, so I thought like, that's an interesting way of visualizing your life and your goals. Then I thought a Venn diagram was kind of interesting because it's, it's a similar idea. So where, where do those things meet? But I think what's beautiful about a Venn diagram is you can draw it in many ways and you can make those circles be what, what you care about being. Uh, so I found myself trying to sketch you know, on my iPad, I was just trying to sketch, okay, what's my Venn diagram? It's a tough exercise, actually, and it doesn't come naturally. It's one of those stomping exercises because you think you know, but it's quite difficult to figure out. As you know, Barry, uh, last year when I was in Argentina and Patagonia, I, I think I called you at some point and I said, hey, bro, I figured out my life purpose. <laughs> um, and that was fascinating. I think that was a natural process of finding my human Venn diagram because I found my various interest areas, the things that give me goosebumps, that bring tears to my eyes, the truth, but also the things that I am good at and I think I can make a big impact on and want to make a big impact on. And I found that those, those all intersect somewhere. And it wasn't so much about, okay, I need to get there now. It was just helped me define what that North Star looks like. But the North Star is not 
it's not one journey, it's not one path. You know, there the Venn diagram, you can get to that center from a lot of different angles. And it's just about having a vision of like, okay, well, what does that sensor look like? And am I getting closer to it every day? Uh, as long as you're not getting further away, you're probably on the right track. And if you, are you ever going to get to that end? Did Leonardo ever get to his center of his Venn diagram? Probably not. And I think that's, that is the point of the journey though, to always push, push it forward. Uh, how about you? What, what, re well, why, I mean, we both, we both resonated with the human Venn diagram. I'm curious I'm curious why that stuck with you. Yeah, ever since last summer, uh, when I figured out this, well, not figured out, I came across this concept of the unique medicine uh, from mm. uh, from this amazing book, which we'll uh, post a link to. It's called The Fourfold Way. And uh, essentially what we call in the West, uh, our personal power, many indigenous and native cultures call it your unique medicine. And essentially... Each person's unique medicine is a combination of their strengths and their interests. Uh, it's a unique combination. No one has quite that combo, right? Even though we share strengths and interests with others, but the very specific ways in which they blend within us and also the specific time in which we're alive, it's unique to us, that medicine. The more we give off the medicine, the more people benefit. Uh, uh, the world benefits. The more we keep it inside, the world suffers and we suffer. So, uh, Hearing Christina talk about the human band diagram made me think of that also. And just uh, connecting the dots to what we've already been talking about today, we can develop the different interests. We can you know, dive deeper into them, whatever strengths we have, we can keep developing them. And obviously the more we develop them, the better we're going to you know, kind of pursue whatever our North star is. And I think, that beautiful calibration of like, we have our own unique medicine, we have our own human Venn diagram. And then the world has like an infinite number of needs uh, out there, the world of people. So calibrating, so the more we learn about the world, the more we learn about ourselves, and then the better we get at expressing our unique medicine, um, the better it's gonna be. I think the key, very thought provoking and personally provocative and a little fear inducing thing for me Mm. is this fear of having the strengths and interests, having the abilities, being blessed with, you know, like a infinite number of lottery wins to be where I am, to have this unique medicine, to have what I have to offer, but not appropriately sharing it. And I think it comes to expression, like how much are we actually expressing our strengths and interests and how much are our strengths and interest getting suppressed by the environments we're in. So that could be our job, that could be our family situation, it could be the societies we live in, what cultures around us like cause us to emphasize or de-emphasize. And how do you, in the face of that, authentically really express your unique gifts and medicines? And I would say the biggest blocker, and you know, based on also what Christina was saying, is like most people just don't spend much time thinking about this. You know, like we yeah. we're we're in the game. We're performing every day. We're trying to win that, you know, equivalent of the football game or the tennis game or whatever. Uh, but really zooming out to think about and getting that sense of clarity on like, what do I actually care about? Uh, what, what actually are my strengths? What does the world really need? And how can I do that? So my call to action, based on all of what I just said now, is the exercise that Christina recommended in this exercise. Everybody to just like take 30 minutes in the coming days and write down 
100 things that you deeply care about having in your life. And as Christina said, most people will run out of steam uh, when they're 20 or 30 items in. Um, I actually did this. Uh, there was a Randy Posh, who was this incredible professor at Carnegie Mellon, who unfortunately died uh, at a relatively young age. And before dying, he gave this last lecture, which is also now a book and highly mm. recommend to everybody. Yeah. He also said, write down your 100 things. He himself had learned it from somebody else who I can't remember now. So in any case, when I did this, when I was young, I did it on Excel and I was just, and like at some point I started repeating myself. So, but I still got to a hundred and then I started grouping things and grouping and stuff. And actually it boils down to very few areas. So it's not like there's a hundred different things that we're mm. all looking to achieve. It's actually a handful of things. And there are trade-offs here. So if you want to, I don't I just, I'll give a superficial example. If one of your goals is to have a billion dollars in your bank account, the amount of time and effort and focus and decades that might take is a lot. So you may be like, hey, you know what? A million bucks is fine in my bank. Maybe 10 million, whatever the number, doesn't really matter. It's like a just an illustrative example. But the time it will free up for not trying to get to a billion, because like, that's not the only interest and strength I have. I have other things also that are yeah. important in life. It was a nice calibration of professional and personal mm -hmm. uh, priorities. So that would be my key call to action for everyone. And if you haven't done this, I can't think of a good reason. You're going to live years and decades more. And you could do it having done this 30-minute exercise to see clearly. <laughs> and what Christina says is that actually most people, if they're honest with themselves, they're doing a ton of stuff that doesn't even make it into the list of the hundred things. <laughs> and there are a lot yeah. of things on that list of a hundred that people haven't even touched and they're living their lives, ignoring what they really want. So first things first is awareness. Uh, and uh, doing this, doing this list of a hundred would be my call to action. So interesting. How many people would respond and say, I don't have 30 minutes. Or like that, if they don't do it, they'd be like, I'm so busy. Well, how many minutes did you spend on things that wouldn't even make it into a list? The top hundred things that you care about. It's so fascinating. And look, there's a recurring trend this week in in, in all of the interviews we did. It's it's a lot about ourself being our, our biggest blocker. Um, at the end of the day, it's just about giving ourselves also the time and space to work on ourselves. Um, and it's just too easy to say, I don't have 30 minutes. And it's a lie. We're all lying to ourselves, but we don't have to feel bad about it. We just need to spend 30 minutes doing something deliberate. Um, and that 30 minutes, may it may provide thousands of hours of fulfillment uh, in the rest of our lives. So I think that's that's really important and a great call to action. And when you're a leader, it's a bit of a double whammy because you obviously have to do all this for yourself and make sure you have support and accountability uh, at a pure level or, you know, somebody, even Olympic athletes, right? Nobody won an Olympic gold medal without a coach. So we got to do this for ourselves. Though the, like the onus of leadership is we also have to make sure we're creating environments where people are a lot more likely to do this kind of reflection and self-development than otherwise. And so as leaders, we do decide. So for example, those running companies and divisions and teams, Guess what? You can take 30 minutes as a team to create this list and people don't need to share their list with each other in full, but they can certainly share, hey, we all did it and we're all going to share what was my key takeaway from writing this list is the one thing I'm going to do differently as a result of this list. Everybody could just share that. 
and then you could just resonate having heard everybody yeah. what comes up for you but as a leader you can actually get people to do this and also with your loved ones with your significant other with your kids your parents what have you whoever is in your family or even with close friends um you can be a leader even when you're not a formally a leader of a group <clears throat> to to get people to reflect on these things so that they're not stuck in the what yeah. Eduardo calls the performance paradox I, i'll i'll make a bet if you did this with your team or even with your family but let's let's call it teams because families i guess have a bit more of a shared shared values do with teams a diverse group of individuals i will bet as they make their list of 100 and they refine those ideas they will converge on very similar ideas and that's a beautiful exercise in terms of team cohesion and bonding what unites us is not just our jobs it's not just what we're working on there is something intrinsic that unites all of us and we could do this across cultures as well uh, but that exercise is very rarely done um so there's many ways of getting to that same result but i'll bet if you do this with your teams you'll find there's a lot more cohesion and alignment within your team than is immediately obvious and those fundamental cohesions are what will create the alignment that you need in more of the day-to-day um, challenges that the business is facing. All right. Now talking about alignment, let's move to our fifth and final <laughs> module drop that we did this week. It's with Neil Howey, and he is the world-renowned author of The Fourth Turning. And this was initially published in the 90s and then republished now in the new updated title of The Fourth Turning is here what the seasons of history tell us about how and when this crisis will end. Fascinating topic. Uh, it's <laughs> oh, at a much more societal <laughs> level. At the same time, though, I do think that many of the themes we've been talking about will translate into this one as well. Vidal, having listened to this particular module, what was the most important thing that came up for you? So first off, I, um, Neil wrote this book in the 90s with his co-author, Bill Strauss, and it's worth diving much deeper into the subject because we're not going to be able to do justice here to the entire multi-generational framework of history. We'll try to give you a bit of an outline, but I think what's what's super important, first off, actually, side note, I just want to say Neil is responsible for coining the term millennial. So Big credit to Neil and kudos for him because that's really made it into the into the vernacular. But putting that aside, what blew me away was near the end of the interview, Barry, you asked Neil about how technology um, and generations, how technology impacts the behavior of different generations. Uh, you specifically made mention to now Gen Z, millennials, Gen Z, they grew up in the computer age, social media age, and how does that impact their behaviors? And Neil very counterintuitively said, Ah, in fact, it's generational attributes and behaviors that shape the technologies that they create. And that being a lover of the history of technology and the history of science, that one really blew me away because it's so true. And for anyone else who's particularly interested in the history of computing, the way that computing started was highly centralized, big organizations, big corporations, literally big computers that took up whole rooms and you needed experts to work them and you had a whole team of people to make the computer do what you needed it to do. Um, and that really aligned with that 1950s culture of general centralization um, of power and structures. 
And that was what that generation, so this is the parents of the baby boomer generation, that was the world in which they were comfortable. The children of baby boomers, on the other hand, where did they come to fruition? Like, when did they start kind of leading the world? It was in the late 60s and 70s. All of a sudden, it's all about individualism. It's all about personal liberty and personal choice. And what did that lead to in a technological sense? It led to people like Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, Bill Gates, taking this big mainframe computer, bringing it to your home, making it personal and saying, now you can, you don't need any organization's permission. You can create on your own. You can do what you want. You can build your own groups. Um, and that's super, super fascinating. And this next generation of big tech that we see is taking that even further and really decentralizing even further. And that's what the internet's responsible for. So I found that really fascinating. I'm really curious what the next generation, the Gen Z generation, what impacts are they going to have on the future of technology? Because according to Neil, it's the generations that impact the creation of technology and not the other way around. Technology doesn't shape us. We shape technology. Yeah, powerful, powerful reflection. Uh, zooming out, so the, the main, and we'll come back to technology, but the main big picture message from the fourth turning is that across a long lifespan of a human, like 80 to 100 years, there are these turnings that happen in every generation, so 20 to 25 years. And in the big picture, it basically goes from this uh, environments in which there is a ton of structure, control, predictability, um, centralization, which then gives way to uh, a kind of a looser, more individualistic, uh, and a distrust of centralized powers and so forth. And at a just more kind of relatable level for <clears throat> individuals, uh, what Neil shared with us is that it's basically about parents, like very strict parents raise kids who end up being much looser parents that just like let their kids do whatever. And then those kids who grow up doing whatever and not having that structure crave a sense of like order and structure. And then they become the strict parents and it goes like that. And apparently this extrapolates to entire generations. So the generation that fought World War II uh, in the United States, obviously massive central power and projection uh, incredible sense of unity against uh, adversaries um, across the world and uh, tremendous trust uh, in institutions. Not perfect, but like certainly people, you know, uh, signing up and getting drafted and fighting the wars and, and all that kind of stuff. Followed by the generation that Vidal talked about where, you know, that transitioned into uh, a culture of more individualism. So according to Neil, we're now in this fourth turning. So our generation is one where uh, he made a very uplifting comment. In every fourth turning, there's a total war and a total war has never <laughs> happened when there wasn't a, a fourth turning. So he made a comment like that, at least in the last few hundred years. Uh, so, uh, and the fourth turning that we're in is uh, expected to last until year 2035, which is 12 years from now. So I'm 38 today and I'll be 50 when this fourth turning is over. And um, in a moment like this, uh, what Neil said is that you know, we're observing it everywhere. Trust in institutions and central power is all-time lows, tremendous polarization, lack of a sense of community, lack of a sense of unity, uh, 
perceived or otherwise, right? But it's very much seems to be uh, what we're experiencing. I'm here in the US, but I was in London, but this polarization and so forth feels very much like uh, trends. So essentially what Neil is saying is that uh, this will kind of crescendo in some mass crisis and then give way into a new first turning, a time of unity, uh, trust, new rebuilt institutions, and a sense of like really people wanting that normalcy. And what he says is that in times like this, we want the safety and security and trust of family. Family becomes really important. And to, to be able to navigate this crisis, and then, you know, a kind of a national global environment where we have that sense of unity and trust and institutions, very much the way uh, so many of our institutions today uh, came about in the aftermath of the Second World War. Um, so for me, I guess the key takeaway from all of that is we, Vidal and I, we grew up with parents who who had strict parents of their own. So our parents were uh, like very, uh, gave us a lot of latitude and freedom. So as far as I can remember, there were no rules, no curfew, no prescriptive do this or do that. There was a tremendous amount of trust and I was the firstborn. Uh, so you know, they gave me a ton of freedom, which then made me very independent, but also I would say responsible because uh, there were no clear red lines. So I had to figure out, you know, what am I comfortable yeah. with and so forth. And we also moved countries from Turkey to Scotland when I was 11 and Vidal was like six or so. And I think I've been obsessed my whole life about community, connection, bringing people together, unity. And I felt this tremendous dearth of it. Like it just felt like it just wasn't really there. Uh, not just for me personally, but in the world. So when I graduated from, when I was graduating from Brown uh, in 2006, for whatever reason, as part of one of my classes, we were reading commencement speeches from the fifties. So in the aftermath of the second world war, and there was one at Princeton where the Dean was giving this commencement speech, telling people like, now like, you are with your talent and your blessings and everything you have access to. You have a responsibility to uplift the nation and bring up communities and make sure those who don't have the privileges you have that you do whatever you can for them. And that really spoke to me. I was so fired up by that. And then I was thinking like, why is nobody like, that's just not a thing. Like no one is galvanizing us when I'm graduating in the same way. And there's been that absence of that. So for me, I, I think that people are seeking community and belonging. They're seeking it from their place of work. And sometimes CEOs, you know, shake their heads and be like, ah, oh, like, am I supposed to now also help people figure out their purpose and <clears throat> do all this handholding kumbaya stuff? That's a very cynical way to look at all this. But the reality is like, this is the environment in which we're operating with the decline of organized participation in religion and like participation in organized religion. Uh, decline in participation and, you know, like companies used to have their like bowling leagues and all kinds of stuff that got people, you know, together in the absence of, of, of all of that. Maslow's hierarchy hasn't changed. After <clears throat> food and shelter, we still need belonging. We're not getting it appropriately and we're seeking it um, in wherever we can find it. But if our families are not providing us with that, you know, that sense of communal belonging because we live far from family or, you know, families are more dispersed. We're not finding it from our companies because of remote work and like, let's just get down to business. Um, it's it's a bit of a problem. So I would say as leaders, 
it's a superpower if we can be the kinds of leaders that create that sense of belonging and community. It's a differentiation, also customer facing. <clears throat> and um, instead of just a great product, service, or experience, if we can also provide that sense of belonging and community, we can only do better. So over to you, Vidal. That was a bit of a monologue there. So excited to hear what no, you I think. love that monologue. I love that monologue. Um, what's interesting to me is, look, I'm naturally optimistic. And while there's plenty of reason to feel doom and gloom about the future of the world, I have to always remind myself that the general trend of history has been a very positive one of development. But there have been certainly those crisis moments, and that's what Neil really emphasizes. But after the crisis comes a moment of incredible growth, incredible innovation. So really, you know, just looking at a macro picture, the responsibility of this generation is while patterns of history do repeat themselves, and that's what Neil's work outlines is these cycles of history, it doesn't mean that it always has to happen the exact same way. And this is what everything that you said, Barry, these are, these are the structures that we need to create to ensure that doesn't happen. And relating back to earlier conversation um, conversations that we had, it's about creating space, not just for practice, but space to find commonality. So while we were talking about Christina's uh, human Venn diagram and the portfolio life, the, doing the exercise with your team of the 100 most important things, we need to find that unity across borders, across cultures, within teams, within families, because we're living in a world now where even families can't find that unity. Um, and I don't think that's a reason to be cynical. It's a reason to be motivated to change that because it's it's not necessary at all. Uh, but it's also, it's and it's certainly not inevitable, but the reality is we have to be extremely deliberate about, about correcting that. Um, and that deliberateness is not there right now. And that inspiration and that vision for a world that is more united and better, it's getting a bit lost in the ether. And I, I don't, you know, we could point to so many things for why that's happening. Uh, but the reality is at, at its core, what is the world? The world is just a collection of humans. And generally humans want what's best for their family. They want what's best for their group or their tribe. Um, and what's best is generally peace, unity, growth, uh, but it's too easy for us to forget those. And it's, you know, this is something I repeat to you all the time, but, you know, the small whisper of negativity can permeate a group like a cancer, but positivity, you need to scream it at the top of your lungs for that positivity to really internalize. Uh, so it's an effort. It's a real effort. It's something that we have to put energy into. It's something that leaders need to put very, very deliberate energy into because they're the way they see the world, the way they perceive, you know, the daily occurrences and, and the reaction of their customers in the market and so on, that permeates down to the whole organization and they can't help it. It's just how it is. There is a sense of organizational self, organizational uh, competence, organizational anxiety, uh, so be quite deliberate. I, I really want leaders to be quite deliberate about what kind of feelings are you sharing with all of those around you? Because you're in a particular position of influence to either push them up and motivate them or make them feel bad, go to sleep, maybe afraid for the future. Why do you want to do that to anyone? You wouldn't do that for your own family. Don't do it for your teams. Um, let's just smile as much as we can every day and be positive. Awesome. Well said. And I think to in our last few minutes together let's uh 
let's do a bit of like a, a zoom that overall reflection. And then we, we covered five modules that we dropped this week at Ivy and we'll do this every week, hopefully going forward, we'll, we'll do this kind of a review and hopefully it's intended to spark a conversation for everybody who chooses to participate, listen in on this, share their own comments and so forth, really want to make it interactive. And uh, on that view, I just want to share a couple of closing reflections. So first of all, uh, there's uh, this conversation that, you know, Vidal and I both listened to the All In podcast uh, and they had their conference and they hosted Ray Dalio as one of the guests. And one question, Ray Dalio likes to talk about the cycles of history and every empire falls and this is why they fall. And one of the questions to Ray Dalio was, well, okay, so is it physics? Is it just mathematical? Like that's just, just human beings are wired in a certain way. And so when empires are built, they will inevitably fall in certain ways because it's physics. And we both also like Foundation uh, by Isaac Asimov. Vidal read, I think, all the books or most of them. I just finished watching the series, uh, the latest season <laughs> on Apple TV. And there it's, you know, psychohistory, that there are patterns. And maybe a big question for all of us as leaders is, is it physics? Are we just stuck in these loops? The forces are so big, like billions of people making decisions. And we just kind of, that's the ocean. And we have our little surfboard trying to surf a wave. Or actually, you know, can can a small group of people, uh, can individual leaders who then through the actions they inspire and the environments they create, can they turn the tides of history? So the fourth turning makes it feel like, look, it's just how it goes. It's like there's a crisis then there's the aftermath and this is just how it goes. Any student of history, though, like when we think deeply about this, um, we'll see that, you know, there are these extraordinary individuals Walter Isaacson just released his Elon Musk biography. Uh, Bidal and I, I think, both listened to the Lex Friedman interview with him. And, you know, Isaacson also said, like, I mean, when you study these people, you realize there's nothing inevitable about the change that they created. Mm. Uh, it wasn't just necessarily going to happen. Like, so the right person at the right time. So for me, I find this very galvanizing uh, on the one hand, because I do think that it matters and it, that you don't need to invent you know, some massive invention. I do think like even the smallest smile, positive nudge, uh, like one kind of change and just like the butterfly effect, you know, you can cause massive change even with your small actions. Uh, not to say that we shouldn't all endeavor also to take big actions and make a make a big impact. But I do I do think it's important. I, I find it very dis like disappointing um, and upsetting when I hear extremely accomplished people who are publicly expressing their despair, how much everything sucks and how epically certain leaders are failing or how bad society is. And I just think to myself, my goodness, like you, as well, like you have, you know, so many resources compared to the average, so much education, so much ability, crazy Rolodex. But if that's your attitude, that like you're just screwed mm -hmm. and you're the victim, uh, and this isn't, one or two people it's an epidemic of this that i'm observing certainly it's also there are incredible exceptions to this rule too but there's a lot of that going around uh from those who objectively speaking are definitely not victims in life uh <laughs> if you just compare it to the, the 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 human population at large so i just think that it's critical for us to be very mindful what kind of conversations are we generating 
uh, how do we uh, nudge dialogue within our families, companies, societies, and humanity at large? And um, final thought, closing thought for me is uh, Yuval Noah Harari had this debate with uh, Mustafa Suleiman on The Economist, uh, which I just finished last night also. And he said, you know, democracies are conversations. That's why we never had large scale democracy in the past, because the technology was not there to have conversation between millions of people. And now that we have the best technology ever, it's shocking how we are, our conversations are breaking down. And it's a huge risk to open societies that depend on conversations. So before going online, I shared this with Fidel and I'll share with everybody here. I do think as leaders, we are, you know, the people who create the space, hold the space, we create containers for people to learn and grow and flourish and you know get clear on their North Stars. But as leaders, we also have the risk that we could be the assholes that hold people back from doing all of that because we create environments that aren't as good. So let's really realize that we have our hands on the steering wheel, that society is not on autopilot. And the way we create space, the way we galvanize others really does make a difference, certainly to those that we interact with directly, but also indirectly, all the people who are impacted by the people we impact and the chain reaction of that is endless. Uh, so I would love uh, for everybody just to really consider that, like you are in charge of a lot, whether formally or informally, and how can we create better conversations, get, create better spaces for people to be flourishing. Over to you, Vidal, to close wow. us out this week. Wow, amen. Uh, very well said, Barry. Um, I think my only reflection, because I, it's hard to top that, and that's a really great closer. My only reflection is for those folks who are feeling that despair and voicing that despair, it's a popular buzzword in the business world now, this concept of quiet quitting, and particularly with flexible and remote work, might think, oh, are my employees like really engaged anymore? Are they quietly quitting? Think about yourselves too. Have you quietly quit on the world? Have you quietly quit in your responsibility to those around you, not just your teams, but your societies and, and the wider world? Um, and really reflect on that and be honest with yourself. And you know what? Stop um, and get back in the game um, and feel the responsibility and feel that pressure. Because uh, it is a pressure, but it's a very positive pressure. It's a pressure for the greater good. So that's my closing thought. What a whirlwind journey we've had um, this week, but a great conversation, Barry, as always, uh, when we take a breather from our day-to-day -day work and really reflect on all of this wisdom and knowledge that these wonderful thought leaders bring to the world. Beautifully said, Vidal. Everybody, you will see links to all the full 60-minute interviews with every single thought leader we refer to today. If you want to go deeper, we have a brand new app also that gives you each insight in really like whether video, audio, or in writing. So hope you enjoy it. Most importantly, though, we want to see your comments, how you're going to put this to use. Uh, please reach out to either of us. We'll also put our email addresses and uh, how we can do better in these conversations. Excited for the next one next week. And just want to say a huge thank you, Vidal, for making sure this happened uh, today and uh, for giving us, I guess, space and time to have these reflections. And thank you everybody for joining to listen in and for helping us co-create this with your feedback. So until next time, take care, everybody. Bye all. Ciao.